Welcome to IGR's The Third Half, presented by Gilbert Rugby Canada. I'm David Cameron Donaghy, here with Jamie Lorenko. Thank you for joining us for a premier podcast episode, IGR's newest way to share information, resources, and stories about IGR, its member clubs, and the rugby world. Each episode will feature an in-depth discussion of a different topic of interest, and joining us in the conversation will be a guest or guests who possess unique experiences, information, or perspectives about the featured topic. We'll also be sharing what is happening with our clubs around the world, the advancements in inclusivity in the sport of rugby union, and other interesting rugby tidbits and facts. The podcast will be produced approximately every three weeks and shared across all of IGR's social profiles, with each episode looking to inform our members and supporters with content we think will be interesting to them and will resonate with our listeners. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of Gilbert Rugby Canada, an organization that shares an IGR's goal of inclusion and participation in rugby for any and all. Feedback, inquiries, and content ideas can be sent to the third half at igrugby.org, along with submissions from clubs on items that we could potentially include in future episodes. For our inaugural episode, we are so fortunate to have with us an exceptional woman and amazing person someone with whom I have formed a friendship with. Amanda J. Mark is passionate about equality and supports 2S LGBTQ rights through her involvement with international gay rugby since IGR's founding over 20 years ago. A financial services executive for over 25 years, Amanda is currently the co-founder and managing director of Mintegrity, a specialist regulatory risk consulting firm that works collaboratively with financial services participants, exchanges, and industry bodies and regulators to raise integrity standards across the industry. Growing up in Sydney, Australia, Amanda developed a love of sport from a young age, playing, watching, and supporting. Her life was forever changed in 1988 when a schoolboys rugby tournament required her school to host a young team from the Bay Area in San Francisco, where she formed a firm friendship with one of its players, Mark Bingham. Amanda, welcome to the third half. Thank you. It's really good to be here. Well, today's the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks, a day which changed everything and impacted countless thousands, regardless of where they were on that fateful day. Where were you? Yeah, I can't believe it's been 22 years, but I remember it like it was yesterday. So I was living in Manhattan in New York on that day. And I was working in Times Square. So that day I had gone into work in the morning about 7.30. It was a glorious, glorious uh, fall morning, crisp and clear. Although I do want to say a spring day because in Australia, (laughs) September is spring. But uh, I was living in the US, so it was fall. And uh, I was working working for Morgan Stanley um, at that time. So that's where I was when uh, all this tragedy unfolded. So who is Mark and how did you uh, how did you meet him? Yeah, so I was living in New York with uh, Mark Bingham, who I had met uh, much earlier, um, well, a few years earlier, uh, when he came to Australia on a schoolboy rugby union tournament. So his rugby union team was touring and Australia at that point um, in my state, we had a schoolboy rugby union tournament and my economics teacher, was involved in the coordination of that. And he reached out to his class. We're in our final year of high school, year 12. He reached out to us to see if we would host 
team members from this team from the the Bay Area, so the San Francisco Bay Area, and we all, well, not all of us, but a few of us actually hosted some of the team members. And Mark Bingham stayed with my one of my good friends at the time, Kathy Farnham. And I had a billet, um, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Chadrick Humphreys stay with me, but they were part of the same team. So that's when I very when I first met Mark back in back in high school. What year was that? Let's just remind. That was in 1988. So uh, it was a long time ago. And then Mark and I became friends. Uh, so. A few years later, well, actually, the year after um, that, Mark actually came back to Australia to visit. He was on another rugby tournament going to New Zealand, I believe. And uh, because his mother worked for United Airlines, he was on a companion pass, so he could um, he could come out to Australia quite uh, cheaply. Um, and he did that on his way to New Zealand. Uh, and then again, we so by this time, him and I had become pretty good friends. And I think it was a few years later, I think it was 1990, uh, 1990 it was, I went travelling around, actually it was 1989, I went travelling around um, with uh, two other friends, including Kathy Farnham, who had stayed with Mark Bingham, and we came over to the US in December of 1989. So that was just after the the big quake in California that year where the Oakland Bay Bridge had collapsed and the epicentre yeah. of that earthquake was at Los Gatos, which is where actually Mark lived uh, with his mum, Alice Hoagland. So I went and visited Mark and we went down and we stayed with his mum and the area still had damage, so there was no... Um, there was no running water or electricity, so we had a generator and we had to hottail it down the hill to have a shower in the morning. Um, there were showers provided by the Red Cross. So, you know, I've had many adventures with Mark Bingham over the years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, how would you describe your relationship with him? Like, uh, close friends? Um, were you roommates at one point or...? Yeah, so we became really good friends and best friends where we both had a love of travel and adventure and trying out new things. And he was kind of like a big brother to, or a brother to me, which is really funny because his birthday and my brother's birthday happens to be the same day, the 22nd of May. <laughs> and um, and my brother's uh, two years younger and Mark's, you know, a couple of months older. So we it was actually like a we had a really, really close relationship um, where we were best friends. And um, we'd worked out pretty, pretty quickly in our relationship that we were just friends, um, which which there was a few reasons for that that came to light later. <laughs> but that's how our relationship started out. Okay. Um, and so by the time. Uh, so by that trip in 1989, um, Mark and I were firm friends and our friendship just continued. Um, even though he lived in the USA and I lived in Australia, we met uh, several times when I would travel to the USA or he would come to Australia. Now, when did you move to the US? Yeah, so we'd been friends for quite a while and in 1998, so 10 years later, we were on holidays, a vacation in New York. We met in New York and we had this wild time and um, we were 
one night we were driving, you know, flying down the street in a in a taxi, and we were both like, you know, we really need to live in New York. And so I had forged a career in financial services, um, and I was working for a U.S. investment bank, Morgan Stanley, and I joined them in '97. And Mark was working in public relations in California, and he'd been working for some big PR firms. And we decided that we really needed to live in New York, you know, the heart of advertising and public relations and the heart of finance. And so every year at Morgan Stanley for my performance review, I would say to them that Amanda would benefit by working in the New York office for the following reasons. And every year they would say no. And (laughs) (laughs) so I kept uh, kept on uh, pushing them. And I had come over to the US in May of the year 2000 for Mark's 30th birthday or 2010 birthday and uh, had a really good time. And I'd been telling Mark how I'd been trying to get to New York and he um, he was laughing at me that I you know couldn't get there. And his uh, grand solution for that was that him and I should get married, um, which was hilarious. But... But I went back and I really, I really pushed uh, the point. And so um, my firm at Morgan Stanley actually got me. I transferred there in um, October of 2000. So I did manage to get a transfer to New York. So uh, by this time, Mark had started his own company, the Bingham Group, uh, a public relations firm uh, dealing with uh, mid-sized tech firms. So he was on the on the cusp of uh, technology and enjoyed all of those things and um, had a really successful uh, a business at that point. Now, when was the last time you saw Mark? Excuse me. So Mark and I, so I moved to New York in October and Mark originally wasn't going to move to New York, but um, he couldn't stand how much fun I was having in New York without him. <laughs> so um, he would call me up like every couple of days and uh, ask me what I'd done. And I was like, oh, I went to a show or I went to the um, free concert in the in um, Central Park or I went to the opening of this restaurant or and he couldn't stand me having all this fun without him. So he decided to open an office um, in New York. So he divided his time between uh, New York and, and San Francisco and we got an apartment down in, in Chelsea. So my birthday is the September 9. And so that weekend before September 11 of 2001, we'd been out for my birthday and um, we'd had, uh, which was the Sunday, and we'd been to the US Open, the tennis on the Saturday night to see the Williams sisters play off against each other in the women's final. We couldn't get tickets to the to the Sunday to the men's US Open final, which was between Australian Leighton Hewitt and... Um, and uh, uh, and I think it was Andy Roddick. And um, anyway, Leighton Hewitt won, so it was very exciting. So we'd been partying all weekend for my <laughs> birthday weekend in, in New York. And then on that Monday, the 10th of September, um, we'd gotten home, I think, on the Sunday night, well, Monday morning, about 4 a.m. when New York um, or the bars close. And so I'd <laughs> gone to work. Um, I may or may not have had a, a hangover, um, but, you know, 
the rules of engagement were if you play hard, you work hard. So you just fronted up to work and continued on. And um, and I did that until about about two o'clock in the afternoon. I still was not feeling very well from all of the birthday celebrations. So I went I went home that afternoon. Um, I just told my boss I wasn't feeling very well. And I went home and I got home to our, to our, our apartment, the apartment that Mark and I shared. And there was Mark sitting on the couch. And I'm like, didn't you have a flight to San Francisco today? And he was like, oh, yeah, it was 7 a.m. He was a bit, because we didn't get home to 4, he was a bit hungover. So <laughs> he decided not to go. And there he was sitting at home in a business shirt on the top um, with just his, like, um, you know, tidy whities on sitting there on on his computer having a conference call with his team in san francisco so he looked all business on the top and um anyway he you know finished his call and so we got to hang out on that monday afternoon um which was really unusual because he firstly he was supposed to be on a flight out that day and i have never in my entire life and i've never done since and had never done before ever left work with a with a hangover so it was really unusual circumstances but um we got there we played a couple of you know video games and and hung out and just um chilled on the on the couch and then um that evening mark had a friend coming in from uh new jersey from um newick matt hall and uh matt and him were going out for dinner and they invited me to go out for dinner even though it was sort of a date for them but anyway he invited me out for <laughs> dinner with them and i declined because i was um still not feeling great but uh they brought me back some some they went down to the local Sichuan chinese and they brought me back some dinner so um that night so monday the 10th of september mark and matt came back to the apartment and uh, and mark had decided that he might stay at matt's that night because matt lived about 10 minutes from newick airport which is where he was flying out of the next day and he wanted to get that early flight the 7 a.m flight and so about 9 30 that night uh, Mark left. Mark and Matt left to go to New Jersey, and that was the last time I saw Mark. And you know, the last thing that he said to me was, you know, been a great birthday weekend, you know, um, and that he and that he loved me, and off he went. And you know, that was my uh, reply back to him, love you. And so that was the last time I saw him was that Monday night, the tenth of September. And then I went to bed and feeling completely refreshed the next day after no drinks the night before. I headed in to the office bright and early around 7 a.m. I usually arrived about 7.30. So as I said, it was a beautiful, glorious, crisp, blue sky day, not a cloud in the sky. I walked to the end of my street. I could see the Empire State Building. I was like, yeah, I love New York. This is what living in New York's all about. I walked up to Midtown to the office, and um, and then you know, a couple of couple of hours later, all hell broke loose. When did you realize you hadn't heard from Mark, um, and you hadn't connected the dots as to when his flight was, and that potentially he was on one of those flights? Yeah, we were. We were at, in the office and the first plane hit the, the tower and um, little, you know, 
tick tape came across my uh, screen that said the news that this plane had hit the hit the tower. So we went into the conference room to turn on the television because that's what we did back then. We had a television in the in the conference room, <laughs> and we we were watching and um and we saw the second plane hit the second tower. And that's when we were all like, oh, my God, you know, New York is under attack. And um, and so we were scrambling, trying to work out what uh, what happened. There was, you know, um, power outages d- uh, down there. We had a team member down in um, that was in the tower because Morgan Stanley had uh, several thousand people in that building, but on lower floors. And um, he was down there for training that morning. So we were trying to find out where one of my team members was and um and then the plane hit the pentagon and so you know by this time we were planning on evacuating the building because we were we were the tallest uh building um uh right there in times square on the um on the west side of of times square and then one of the one of my other team members uh whose cousin was in the FBI he said he walked past and said, because um, we were running between the conference room and and our desks, and he said there's a fourth plane, um, a United flight out of Newark that had been hijacked. And at that moment, I went, oh my God, Mark is on that flight. I just had a gut feeling that he was on that flight. And I got another two of my team members to try and call United to try and find out what. What had happened? Of course, United weren't giving any information um, about that. I called Mark's uh, cell phone, but uh, he didn't he didn't answer. And um and then so I knew I I really knew he was on that flight. So that's when I was really really worried about him. Um, it made me I I went and threw up. I felt really sick for it. And I came back and we we evacuated. And um. I took a few of my team members back to my mine and Mark's apartment because we were in a low-rise building and it was just complete chaos and there was no trains or buses running. Um, there were ferries getting people off the island of Manhattan, but it was just chaos everywhere else. And so we went back to my apartment and by this time all of the um, phone lines were jammed so you couldn't dial a cell phone, you, you couldn't get get through there was just so much cellular traffic that you couldn't couldn't actually dial any more cell phones and so you could still dial uh, landline numbers remember those Um, (laughs) so you could still dial um, a landline and so I um I was trying to get in touch with Mark's mother and um I knew she had was staying with her brother because um she just recently given birth to triplets for her brother as a surrogate. So she just had um, these babies around Easter and she was helping um, because they already, she'd already given birth to a, a, another child and they had another child. So she was still helping them with their five children. Um, and so I called uh, my office in New York from my home phone and I got them to put me through to the San Francisco office because we have. Um, trunk lines, lines that were like open all the time to get through to the offices in financial services. And so I got them to put me through to Mark's to Mark's mum, Alice. And um I finally got through to her and uh she told me that um yes Mark was on that flight and he had called her uh from the flight and told her that um there was three 
terrorists. Uh, he was up in first class, um, seated in first class because he was on that flight uh, to go back to San Francisco. And um, she said that he'd called he'd called her and had um, said that he was on that flight, they had a bomb, and that there was a few of them that were going to try and do something about it. Wow. Oh, my God. I, I, that's the first time that we've ever spoken about this and that I've heard that detail. Um, it, it kind of hits you. Um, Tell us about Mark as a person. Like who we, yeah. we know who he was on the pitch, um, formidable. Um, you know, not a tiny guy. But who was Mark Bingham? You know, your friend and the the person. Yeah, Mark was larger than life, and he was actually large too. He was six foot five, so <laughs> um, <laughs> a very tall gentleman, and. As I said, through high school, he'd played rugby and he'd played rugby his pretty much his whole life apart from um, a period. So uh, just a little period where he wasn't playing rugby. So he had played rugby in high school and he uh, got onto the the team at the University of California in Berkeley. So he played for Cal Rugby and actually was on the championship team. They won two championships. And after university, he played for the Olympic Club in San Francisco, which was a, a private rugby club. And he'd been playing rugby for them, but he was working in PR and he really wanted to be true to himself. And um, he had come out to his friends and family. Uh, he was a gay man. And he didn't think that being gay and playing rugby were compatible and he was worried what his teammates would think if they found out he was gay and that it, it you have to remember this was a different era this was back in the early 90s so it was a different time and so he stopped playing rugby and he was devastated that he had to stop playing but he felt that he couldn't you know be himself and he was worried what his teammates would think about him but a few years later in San Francisco, he was in um, one of the parks there and he saw these guys throwing around a rugby ball and he looked at them and he, of course, he's, you know, drawn to the rugby ball. So he really had a passion for rugby, like a moth to a light, you know, marked to a rugby <laughs> ball. <clears throat> so he headed over and he discovered that they were an inclusive team, the San Francisco Fog. So they were a gay and inclusive rugby team, which he could not believe. So he literally, um, you know, joined in and started playing and, and was actually thrilled that his worlds had collided. So his gay life and his rugby world had collided. And he he joined that rugby team. So that gave him huge, huge amounts of joy. So some of the things from rugby were that it really taught him about being a team player and a, and a team sport. And he was always looking after his friends, whether they were his fraternity brothers at Kaisai, whether they were his friends like me. And wherever you went and met Mark, he was one of these generous people that would welcome you into the group. So there was no not welcoming new people into his circle of friends. 
and he would keep in touch with you, which sounds ridiculous now because we've got social media where it's so easy to connect to people. But back then, he would get your phone number and your email and he would reach out to you and connect you. And if he was coming, if he'd met you in Chicago and he was back in Chicago, he would go and visit you. He would call you up and say, I'm in Chicago. What are you doing? Let's hang out. Um, and I, he would have loved social media because that was what he, he was already social before media, <laughs> social media existed. Uh, so he was really um, open and welcoming and um, would really like welcome people into his circle of friends. And if you met him in the first five minutes, you would think he was your best friend because that's how he made you feel. So he had a real um, connection with people and he was able to do that. In um, playing with the fog, he'd also been meeting with some of the guys in New York and helped set up the New York uh, Gotham uh, rugby, gay and inclusive rugby team. And we, one of these nights, we'd gotten home early-ish for a New York night and um, we were talking and Mark was talking about how he really wanted to write the great American gay novel. And what he wanted to do, why he wanted to do this was we were talking about how in high school you get given the curriculum of books to read and there'll be one or two that really influence you and they they change your outlook on life. And Mark wanted to write the great gay American novel where it went through, you know, that gay people have always been here, that they're always around, that they're your friends, that they're they're included in society and that they do things and they are there and you're just not aware that they're they're gay and nor should you be like you know we should be inclusive and so he wanted to write this novel that would be on the high school curriculum that would change people's mind and if he had to change them one by one he was prepared to do that but he really wanted to make an an impact and influence people that you know gay is here it always has been it always will be and you just haven't known about it but now that you know about it it changes your view on that and so he didn't get to write that that novel but when the san francisco fog plus a few of the other gay and inclusive teams in in north america when they got together in 2002 to hold a tournament in his honor they've kind of brought that view to to life and when I tell people that um, I'm a huge supporter and an ally of uh, gay rugby they're like what gay rugby <laughs> and I really think it does change people's mind because you know there are gay people that always wanted to play sports and like Mark he gave up the sport that he loved for fear of what his teammates would do when they found out and so now the fact that there is this international gay and inclusive rugby tournament the Bingham Cup that is played every two years and when you tell people about it it really does change their mind about uh, about things I think by default he's changed people's minds and he's changed the way people think about that and I really think he would be proud of achieving that although not how he wanted to but but he has done that and I think that it's really important um, that people know the story of Mark of Mark Bingham and and what it means. Well, tell us a little about his mom Alice, because I mean she was at every Bingham Cup. I mean I met her in Nashville briefly. 
uh, crying like a baby, like everyone else that met her for the first time. Um, and then was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with her in Amsterdam. Um, but what, what was Alice like? And what, what did she see uh, with the Bingham Cup? Like, how, how did she envision it? Yeah, so Alice was amazing. In fact, Mark thought she was a goddess. And on his office wall, he had a photo of, of her with a statement underneath that said, Alice Hoagland is a goddess. <laughs> and she she had been a single mom raising him. So she moved him from Florida um, to the Bay Area. They turned up and they lived out of her car for a period of time while she was looking okay. for work. And Mark, you know, would fish and that's how, like, we, he would contribute to things. He was a little kid. And Alice was fiercely independent and she became a flight attendant. And her sister Candy also became a flight attendant. And sometimes when she was on flights that would take her out of town overnight, um, her brothers and sisters would look after Mark. Or she would smuggle him on the on the flight, and he would stow away so that she she could keep him with her. Um, so he had a little bit of an adventurous life with her, and she was willing to take risks uh, to def, you know to keep her family together. And she did what she had to do to provide for Mark, and she was always looking out for him. And she didn't want him to miss out on anything. You know, she'd be out there pitching a softball at him, um, kicking a ball around making sure he had time with his uh, uncles, her brothers, um, playing sports, so making sure that he was as well-rounded as she could she could make him. And then being a flight attendant has its challenges and, and um, you know, she was always ready to jump into action. And I think one of the ways I best describe this is uh, that year in 1989, we spent Christmas with her family. So we drove down from Los Gatos to stay with her parents in uh, Lake Arrowhead, just down out of um, LA there. And we were driving down uh, I-5 and we're actually, I can't remember whether it was on the way down there or on the way back, but the car in front of us burst into flames. And it was, we're driving down the, the highway, um, the car in front bursts into flames, it pulls over, Alice pulls over. We were, we were there, so there's three Australian girls, Mark and Curly the dog with Alice in the car in this little station wagon and we're jumping out the dogs jumped out we're chasing the dog but before anything has happened alice has pulled the luggage out of the the um trunk i want to say boot because that's what we say in australia but the trunk for americans and canadians and north americans so we'd say trunk she pulled the luggage out of the trunk she grabbed the fire extinguisher she put the flames out on the side of the road, all within about 60 seconds of pulling over. So she was fearless, jumping into whatever needed to happen. And I think that she instilled those, those um, that fearlessness into Mark. So he would always jump in to, to do things. And so Alice had this fiercely independent um, and she streak and she wasn't afraid of anything. And so when the Bingham Cup um first happened she couldn't believe that they were honoring her son like that and again while she didn't she just supported her son and his inclusiveness so she attended every bingham cup for the remaining part of, for the rest of her life and she was how 
I would describe her as, you know, the mother figure for a lot of yeah. of gay people that needed that in their life because their circumstances and when they came out hadn't gone as smoothly um, as they'd hoped and their families may not have been as accommodating as they should be. And Alice filled a void for a lot of people and she took that role very, very seriously. She missed Mark and she dedicated her life to remembering him and 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 welcoming these people into the community of the Bingham Cup. And she was always welcoming, open. She would listen to a story. Um, the stories were all just break your heart material. Um, and she would always stop whatever she was doing to make sure she would lend an ear to these to these people and hear their story and then give them a kind word or some encouragement. And so she was the mother of gay rugby and that mother figure to all of the the players and the supporters. And the love for her at these tournaments was immense. And her, um, she was so proud of what the Bingham Cup has become and its inclusiveness. And she was really, you know, proud to be associated, would always be there and would always give her time, regardless of what, what was going on in her own life. She would devote her time to fostering that inclusiveness and encouragement for all to participate in sport and finding a family in rugby if, you know, circumstances didn't allow that in the rest of their life. I absolutely love that. Um, so we now have the mother of gay rugby and in the wake of kind of everything that happened, the organization International Gay Rugby came into existence. So do you believe that, um, like what what was Alice's opinion of this now new unity being formed, International Gay Rugby? Do you think what it does, its purpose kind of served what she kind of wanted for Mark and all together? I think it did because I think if Mark, if September 11 didn't happen, Mark would have had some impact on on this. Particularly as he was growing into, you know, a confident young man, um, making his way in the world, and he wouldn't tolerate people not including, like, being exclusive. Um, like I said, he was always inclusive, and he got that from his mother. She was always inclusive, and she was so proud to be part of this movement that one kept his memory alive but also had this impact of inclusive inclusive ugh, activity so bringing people together um so i think that alice was surprised by the international gay rugby movement i think she it caught her by surprise i don't think she initially realized the impact it could have and the change that it could make uh, but once she, but she'd always supported the Bingham Cup. Um, so with the with the IGR and the Bingham Cup, she was more than happy to offer her services in any way she could to promote that um, community to to people. So she really embraced it. She did a really good job of it. Like um, she's really missed in the community. Oh. And the Bingham Cup in Ottawa was really hard when she wasn't there. Yeah. 
No, it's just, again, I had the fortunate um, opportunity to spend quite a bit of time with her in Amsterdam and uh, mother of rugby. Like, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, <laughs> she, she was. Do you, do you think that she was surprised at the snowball effect of Bingham Cup? Every year it got bigger and bigger and it was going out of, out of the States, went to Sydney, uh, was in England. Um, you know, it just, it just cascaded into the second largest rugby event in the world. Was she in awe of what started as a memorial tournament for her son? She was in awe. And, you know, from the six teams that played in 2002 to, um, you know, more teams in Manchester, in New York, in Dublin, in Minnesota. Every year the tournament just got bigger and bigger. Manchester, Sydney, Nashville, <clears throat> Amsterdam, Ottawa. Like she would have, she, well, she did say to me, because I would go to the tournaments with her and we would spend a lot of time together, uh, particularly during the Bingham Cup, where she would be doing radio shows and interviews and press releases and whatever was needed from the, the hosting city. She would dive into that. And we would often talk about what would Mark think about all of this. So her and I would sit there and think about what he would say to all of this. And we agreed that he would be, he probably would have been the life of the party. Uh, he probably would have been, playing rugby but also partying pretty hard um, <laughs> and he would have been making sure everyone he met uh, would being in, was feeling included and so she would be doing she would be doing that in because he wasn't there to do it so she would be making everyone feel included <clears throat> and um trying not to have favorite teams so she was trying not to have a favorite <laughs> team but I do know um, she had a fondness of the San Francisco Fog, particularly because that was Mark's first team. But yeah. <clears throat> uh, she really appreciated the value of the Bingham Cup and what, what it does and how it's enabled, um, you know, people to actually get out and play a sport when, you know, they may not have played for quite a few years or they stopped playing sport as a child when they realised that they were, um, you know, uh, gay, lesbian, trans, whatever, whatever they, whatever it happens to be. So she was thrilled that that could be, um, yeah, her contribution to this, and that she played a part in it, and that Mark would have been, he would have loved the party of the Bingham Car. That would be like the <laughs> playing sport, meeting people, getting out there, having a beer after the tournament. Um, that would have just been so far what Mark loved doing um, and she really appreciated that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, so that being said, let's let's talk a little bit about the Bingham Cup. So it, we've had 21 years worth of Bingham Cups that have come up and from the sounds of it, it sounds like you've been to quite a few or maybe all of them. Not all, but a few of, quite a few of them, yep. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you could, uh, maybe you could tell us about where kind of started and what the evolution was like uh, to the latest one in Ottawa. What was your experience with that? Yeah, so um, the first one after um, that was hosted by the San Francisco Fog was really what set this what set this course 
And then the following year, um, there were teams, um, it, it went to the UK. So it went to um, Manchester. And so that was the, the first start of it. So sadly, back then, um, I was younger and I didn't have enough money to, uh, to afford to travel to these uh, tournaments. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the Bingham Cup grew each time and um, more teams participated as more teams sprung up. So I think the King's Cross Steelers were, are the oldest um, gay and inclusive rugby team in the world. Um, and I think they've just celebrated their 20, uh, 25th or 27th birthday. So they're, they've been around for quite a while. And since then, there's well over 100 gay and inclusive teams around the world. So this is a movement, right? This has really taken, taken off. And it's grown and more people have attended. It gets more coverage. It shines a light on the fact that you know, um, sport is for everyone, and there is always a family you can find when you when you want to play sports. And in 2018, there was a uh, in Amsterdam, uh, they held a um, a women's tournament, so that was quite exciting. And um, after that tournament, what, 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 what was that tournament called, by the way? Well, it was it was part of the Bingham Cup. It was the women's tournament, but after that. Um, <laughs> They uh, they did name the the women's tournament the Amanda Mark Cup after me, so oh that was a huge honor, and <laughs> I, I attended. <laughs> <laughs> I attended Ottawa to watch the Amanda Mark Cup being played. I was thrilled that it was won by the uh, Ottawa Wolves, the hosting team with some fierce competition by the other women's teams. I'm looking forward to the women's tournament again in Rome next year for Bingham Cup. And so I think that this movement now um, is definitely here to stay. There's the fun of the tournament, um, the bringing people together, the shared experiences, and the fact that this is inclusive is really powerful story um, and a really strong message that you too can play sports. You too can do whatever you want, regardless of where you sit on the on the spectrum. Well, uh, so you, you mentioned, and we know that there's there's over a hundred gay queer clubs now that are all over the world. Um, just from your insight, how do you think Mark would have received knowing that information today that that many are now in existence? You know, I, I can I can see him um, jumping up and down like it's all about me. It's all about me. But that's not not really what he would think. He he would be really thrilled that this this had reached this level um, to include everyone and to bring people together uh, for a sport that he was so passionate about. And he really cherished the friendships and the relationships that he formed playing rugby throughout his entire life and that feeling of being included in something um, really formed who he he was and he lived and breathed that he lived that through you know being a good sportsman and doesn't matter how hard you get tackled on the field but shaking your opponent's hand and then having a drink with them at the end of the game and talking about um, the thrills and spills of the game, but also about what good uh, friendships are being formed and the, and those relationships. So Mark would be, he would be 
You know, I, I think he would be absolutely devastated that he's not here to enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> um, just wanted to touch on women's rugby in the Amanda Mark Cup. How do you think uh, IGR, Bingham Cup, and the Amanda Mark Cup have had, or what sort of influence do you think they've had on women's rugby and women's participation in the sport? Do, um, do you think that it's opened a new door for a lot of women to start playing when before maybe they thought that there was a barrier for them to? Yeah, I think on the women's rugby that it, it has done that. Um, but I do think that the the women's path has been slightly different to the to the men's uh, path. But I do think that it has opened those those doors. And the fact now that there's this international tournament, um, so we've seen in, in women's rugby there's uh, international tournaments in sevens, um, rugby sevens, and um, and this is really like highlighted that there is this international global competition where you can where you can play against teams from around the world. So I think that that's a really strong message to girls and women out there that you can play and there is this tournament. Um, it's got silverware that is comparable. <laughs> it's equal to the men's because it's all about equality for all. And, um, you know, I think that that's really important message that um, that the sport is inclusive. So it doesn't matter uh, your background, um, you know, it doesn't matter any of these factors, you can play rugby. So I think that's a really important message to get out there. And I'm looking forward to seeing a growth in women's rugby um, as we have done um, in the in the men's in the men's rugby. That's I absolutely uh, agree with that because um, in my experience, I haven't been with rugby long, but it's about holding the door open for the next group. So yeah. Exactly. Uh, we accepted gay rugby. Uh, women are now having more time in rugby, and now uh, as society evolves and we have more things coming up, we now have uh, trans players looking to get into rugby. And this is also an exciting opportunity, but also a world challenge because this is new information for folks. So, do you think that international gay rugby in both the Bingham Cup and the Amanda Mark Cup can help influence? the inclusion and increased acceptance of trans players in the sport. Yeah, and I was thrilled to see there was the first trans rugby game in uh, North America. So that was incredible to see that it had reached this far. And there is always a place um, in rugby. And in Ottawa, uh, the president of the Ottawa Bingham Cup, um, Jean-Francois, organised a uh a conference on trans players in in sport, which was which was eye opening for a lot of people, I, I think, and I think that it really st has started to pave the way for this inclusion um, of that group because I think it's really important. And rugby is a welcoming sport. You know, one of the things I love about rugby is it doesn't matter your height or your size or your speed because rugby has a different position that or suits everybody. your skills so you can bring everyone together you can have uh you know a short quick half fly and a really big solid front rower like it just brings everything together and you need the team to work as a team to be able to play and so rugby is one of those places where it doesn't matter you can play yeah um just 
to tie things off, what do you think uh, the long-standing legacy of Mark will be, uh, whether it's within IGR or outside of the organization? Well, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if we lived in a world where we didn't have to distinguish um, and that we all were just the human race and we just participated in things together? But as we've seen, particularly with different political positions and, and different things going on in the in the world, that there is still a need uh, for the Bingham Cup, the Amanda Mark Cup and international gay rugby. And I think that the legacy that this is providing, that there is, I love that analogy, the door's open for the next group of players, Jamie, that's amazing, like to encourage people to continue coming through and finding their own strength and their own sense of belonging and I think that 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 is what we want to continue on and continue to build um, through the international gay rugby movement and by the tournaments that are um, held in the different regions around the world so we've got the purchase cup we've got the Norcan cup we've got the union cup we've got the and then we've got the global Bingham cup so all of this together is you know allowing people to be themselves and bringing them together um, to enjoy a sport that is for all. Um, you know, when I when I was a little kid, like, women didn't, we, we weren't given the opportunity to play rugby. We could play touch rugby, um, but there was no full-on contact rugby when I was a, a little child. So, you know, things are progressing, although slowly in some instances, but overall, um, progress is good and I think we still need to to stand united um, to push this forward until there's a point when we don't need to to do that um, if that happens in my lifetime I will be amazed but I think there's a, a need to to continue to bring people together and make them feel included I think that was a perfect way to uh, to end this conversation and this discussion um, it's I I thought I had uh, known a lot about Mark and it's you know what I've mentioned to you before that a guy who died on 9-11 who I never met impacted my life forever uh, in a sport that I love. Um, I think your candidness with everything that you know you're a full experience with Mark um, I think is going to open a lot of eyes. Uh, a lot of people I don't think knew who the man was um, and what his legacy is. Uh, and I think it's something that collectively we all need to make sure that we, you know, we hold that candle and continue the legacy um, because it has been so profound. Um, Amanda, thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, absolute pleasure as always. Um, and thank you for again for for sharing uh as you have yes thank you so very much a lot was shared today and i'm just touched to hear the story again and get more detail about it so thank you well thank you very much for having me here today it's been a pleasure to talk to you both and i really look forward to seeing you both and everyone else in rome in may of uh 2024 at the bingham cup in rome and I love that the opening party is on Mark Bingham's birthday, the 22nd of May.
Oh, my amazing. goodness. That's amazing. <laughs> I think my brother will be disappointed I'm not in the country for his birthday, but them's the breaks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll definitely see you there. Looking forward to it, gentlemen. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us on this, our premiere podcast episode. And it seems only fitting that our conversation was centered around Mark and his legacy, without which IGR would likely not exist as it does today. Don't miss our next episode, available September 25th, when we'll have a conversation with Jean-Marco Forcella of the Bingham Cup 2024 Roma Organizing Committee to talk to him about all things Bingham in 2024. Send any questions you may have about next year's tournament to the third half at igrugby.org, and we'll try to answer any questions that are received. Thank you for joining IGR's The Third Half, presented by Gilbert Rugby Canada. We'll leave you with a very special track written and performed by Melissa Etheridge that commemorates Mark Bingham and his bravery on United Flight 93 22 years ago today. I'm David Cameron Donaghy. And I'm Jamie Lorenko. See you next time. Tuesday morning In the fall of an American dream A man is doing what he knows is right On flight 93 He loved his mom and he loved his dad He loved his home and he loved his man But on that bloody Tuesday morning
Hear the bell now as it tolls Wake up America It's Tuesday morning Come on, let's roll